All right. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. So today we have another annuals episode. Uh, last annuals episode, we had Steve Bunch on and had a ton of fun. And we decided that uh, we always want to have some a guest on whenever we do an annuals episode. And so we have on here George's Genty. And I will go ahead and let him introduce himself. Take it away. Oh, we should give him a bit of an introduction. <laughs> oh, no, I, I don't. Honestly, I don't okay. mind. It really, I, the, as much as you guys have to go through, I'm, I'm amazed that you can remember somebody's name from time to time. But no, yeah, I'm, I'm George Ascenti, a working comic artist uh, in the field for over 25 years. I've worked at Marvel and DC and Dark Horse. I started in the independents and worked my way up. Did almost every title you can think of or every every group title. A uh, little bit of the X-Men, uh, some Superman, Batman, Deadpool, uh, Gambit. Uh, so many things over the years. I've, I've forgotten so many more that I've actually drawn. Um, but yeah, I, <laughs> I probably got real famous for drawing Buffy the Vampire Slayer with Joss yes. Whedon when he revived the series. Uh, and that's probably where my I, my fire started to really catch. From there, I was then, years later, asked to do The Mandalorian for Marvel Star Wars. And that's right now, I think, where a lot of people are starting to really know me from, even though I've been around for so, so many years. Very cool. Yeah, thank you. And yeah, I, if I remember right, when I was trying to break in as an anchor, uh, Dark Horse, I believe, sent me at least one of your Buffy the Vampire Slayer pages. Oh, yeah, really? No, I had no clue. I don't remember if I did it, but I remember looking at it and being like, oh, no, you know what? I did attempt it. And I think there was some smoke that was in the background and I wasn't happy with how I had handled it and i was gonna go oh. back to it never did so, oh i'd love to see that page if if i'm sure it's around here somewhere i don't tend to throw that <laughs> stuff out so uh if i can if i can pull it up uh somewhere if i can dig it out uh i will share well that you know you. We're, we're artists we we go on visuals so yes yes indeed well i just want to say that that's very cool it's great to have you here and yeah there's studying about you before this episode there's all sorts of other stuff i can mention the, the american way was a very big deal comic oh, series yeah. that there, you yeah. were that too, um, did yeah. you, were you co-creator of that? Did you get co-creator credit or just? Uh... Um, I mean, technically, I don't necessarily get co-creator because John Ridley, the creator and writer of the series, that really was his baby. And he brought it to uh, at the time he brought it to Wildstorm, which at that time was not part of D.C. Him and uh, the editor, Ben Abernathy, talked about it and went forward with it and then chose an artist. And I happened to be the gentleman for that. Um, I did create more of the look of it than I, I don't know if that would deem a co-creator credit, but I did do the look of the book. Well, did the book sell to Hollywood and did you get a piece of the check? That's the uh, real question. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, it did. But as in most cases, and John told me this out, out the gate, he's like, look, this is probably going to, you know, they're going to pick it up as an option. But as so many options in Hollywood, it's going to languish forever. And once they do, if they do pick it up, they will probably look at it in a way that you were saying to yourself, this wasn't the book I signed up for. <laughs> and they turned it into a totally different concept at that point. So he just said, I just want to prepare you for that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's still very, very cool that you got to ride that train. I was a uh, working screenwriter once upon a time, so I know what it is like. 
But uh, well, that is that is super cool. You're you're a great artist. It's just great looking at your career, and it's just so wonderful having you here. Let me ask. So you are a working comics artist. You have worked for Marvel. One of my big questions is always, you know, you always hear about the Marvel method, and even when I was a kid, it was definitely something that you knew is that the Marvel method was art first, and the DC method was script first, and yes. that. But what's that? When did that stop being true? Is that still true today? And if not, when did it stop being true? This is something I've never had any sense of. Um, to my knowledge, because obviously that had been in place long. I think that had been in place. So Stan and Jack actually yes. created the format, if anything. And yes, that was very much the case. Because like you, I I find myself in the business that I love and that I'm in. I find myself in any, any business that, that you're in, you, you tend to become a historian because you're curious about what went on before the thing you do. And every time I get with, you know, classic artists, people whom you respected as a kid or whatever, I'm always asking him those questions. Yeah. What was it like, you know, when you were doing this and that? And you, you'll always get these very interesting stories from these guys. And yet there was very much a Marvel message. And the Marvel method was more there was a plot that the writer or editor in many cases gave you and then the artist would then go and draw out and in this case when i say artists there is a definite gap between a jack kirby artist and i i will say some whoever is, is trying to break into the business today you know if jack kirby is the mozart of comics very few of us will ever attain to that greatness so giving him a plot to say here fill 20 pages of this i think is a very very broad way of saying just go ahead and be creative and allow that muse to play you out that most of us do not have unfortunately so that Marvel method, I do think, applied to gentlemen like that. Another guy I would probably say that to be the case or was the case would be like John Byrne or someone like that back in the day when they were just very prolific with their work. And a lot of it was, let's just get it done and we'll figure it out later type of thing. And I think that's what the Marvel method really was. And of course, once it was all drawn, then the writer would come in and put the dialogue to it and it would go off. And that was deemed the Marvel method. But when you were when you were doing your illustration for Marvel, when you were uh, the illustrator for Bishop, the last X-Man in 1999, was it still like that? Yeah. When I started, no, it was pretty well because, the you know, the guards had changed at that point. Mm -hmm. So uh, a couple of the people I worked with had been there for for years, like Ralph Macchio, I believe, had been there. And Archie Goodwin was still around. And oh, wow. these people who were classics in their professions were still there and still doing it obviously they were few and far between now but they were appealing to a new crowd and i don't believe that marvel being the company that it was and all the changes that it went through could i guess comfortably sustain themselves by entrusting artists to do you know 20 pages of whatever from a, a basic plot and going on from there to script it they needed something a little more concrete in those days i will say the scripts were probably a lot looser whereas a writer would say here page one thor and hercules get into a fight and they fight for page two uh, at some point, you know, uh, uh, a fray comes in and and they they have a conversation and I'm going to need her to be surprised at what Thor says to her. So they may give you more of a plot script rather than a general breaking down of panel one, panel two, panel three like that. Um, but when I got there, like you said, back in 1999, it was very much becoming 
the way DC would then have said their their full script method, because so many people were now looking at these scripts and you couldn't just rely on a, a paragraph to summarize what the book was going to be about. And I think that Marvel method got left behind because a lot of people had, <laughs> I hate to say it, a lot of people with no creativity were looking at these scripts. <laughs> and if you just gave them one paragraph, they're looking at it going, I, I don't get this. What, what What's happening here? So it was forsaken, I think, yeah, probably in yeah the new, uh, that decade. Once that decade really came into fashion, the 2000s, you know, that was definitely a whole new ballgame. Yeah, one, okay. one thing I can say is I have seen with my own eyes some uh, Chris Claremont scripts that were in like the 2000s or so. And my understanding is he to this day still pretty much uses the Marvel method that he uh, uh, will just write out a couple of paragraphs for each page and then well, hand well, it off. My Yeah, my mm -hmm. understanding with that when they were doing because, of course, Chris was still writing the X-Men mm -hmm with the the new crop of artists with the mark silvestri's and the jim right. lee's and mm -hmm. all of those guys coming in and i now i don't know how true all of these stories are because at that time i wasn't a professional but i was managing a comic shop um at that time i was hearing things that um you know chris would write these you know very in, intriguing stories and they would go in and a lot of those guys who were getting very popular at the time kind of picked and choose what mm -hmm. they wanted to illustrate given the scripts they were they were reading and so they probably weren't putting as much i don't know density as as claremont is known to do in what they were doing and they just essentially were drawing a lot of cool things that they wanted and i think that's why <laughs> if you look at those old well those you know pre-image comic books you see a lot of people either standing there or there's this insane action sequence but there isn't <laughs> and, and it's funny i had a talk with this with john with um uh, michael golden one year there wasn't a whole lot of storytelling and that's michael never appreciated the image boys which is a lot of them thought him to be their their you know where their influence came from and he never really appreciated the image crowd because they they bastardized the art of comics because it made everybody think that comics were just very cool splash pages with one or two areas for storytelling. Whereas, of course, it should be just the opposite. It was storytelling with one or two very cool splash pages. Yeah, I, I was at a convention one time and there was a panel where John Byrne got into it with, I think it was Tom McFarlane. <laughs> and John Byrne is like, I have a whole stack of pages I can't sell that I call The Adventures of Steve Rogers. And <laughs> you guys don't have that. You don't have any pages that you can't sell because you never do The Adventures of Steve Rogers. And, you know, uh, I, I got you one better. I was at that? that Peter David McFarlane, Todd McFarlane debate years and years ago at San Diego Comic-Con. Where these two came head to head. Well, Todd McFarlane had offered, had had given Peter a a platform to say, "Hey, let's let me tell you why, you know, the image way is the better way, and we don't really need writers." And of course, Peter he was doing. I guess McFarlane was doing it more as a Rocky and an Apollo Creed fight, and uh, Peter David came at it very seriously. He said, yeah, I, I talked to a lot of my writer friends, and they gave me, you know, a, a way, a format of how to engage this man, which he, he really didn't need. <laughs> so it was, it was very entertaining for the few minutes that it took place.
That's awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is awesome. You are the real deal. You can actually answer these questions that I've always wanted answered. This is great. So tell us about these three comics we're about to read. Had you read them before? How long How long had it been since you had read them, if you had? Now, the, the one was the Spider-Man one, right? Right. Yes. So today right. we are going to be looking at the annuals from 1965 uh, that came out over the course of 1965. But we've saved them all up for this episode. We're going to be looking at Journey into Mystery, annual number one with Thor, Amazing Spider-Man, annual number two, guest starring Doctor Strange, and Fantastic Four, annual number three, featuring the wedding of Reed and Sue. I, I have to say, I, and much to my chagrin, I, when I was a kid, I was never a Spider-Man fan, oddly enough. I, mm. I liked him in terms of pop culture because Spider-Man was probably the first Marvel character you saw on a lunchbox, things like that. And that I thought was good, but I just never picked the character never interested me for some reason. So mm. I never <laughs> really got into Spider-Man. And I hate to say all of what I've read, I still have, and I just didn't have any of that around. So I am tardy for that one book, but I'm very much there for the other two. Well, okay. well, you you aren't going to have to deal with much Spider-Man in the Spider-Man annuals. <laughs> oh, is that it? Really? Yeah, it's it's a little weird. So, uh, but we'll get to that. So well, I'm uh, assuming it's still a Ditko who's is the artist oh, yeah. at that time. Oh, yeah, yeah mm. but he he just he just turns it into a Doctor Strange annual. So. Uh, okay. <laughs> so let's go ahead and jump in with journey into mystery annual number one so journey into mystery has not changed its name to thor yet it will in about four months i think but it is so-called journey into mystery so this will be the only ever issue of journey into mystery annual we've got so all three of our annuals brag on the cover that they have 72 big pages. They're no longer doing the thing they did with the last year's of annuals where they have every letter of the title be multicolored. They just have the standard logos this time, and they all say 72 big pages. All three of the annuals we'll be looking at tonight have a lot of reprints. The lead stories are just normal comic book length and then packed in with a lot of reprints in the back. With both the Journey into Mystery and the Fantastic Four, they're reprinting comics that were not inked by Vince Coletta, and they're, you can't help but compare them to the, uh, tragically, both of these annuals are inked by Vince Coletta, the <laughs> Journey into Mystery annual and the Fantastic Four annual. And now just, there we can, we can argue about Vince's uh, for prolific uh, inks, because I, I really do feel he's underrated. Okay, so we have a Coletta Defender. All right, this is good to have. <laughs> so I'm usually a Don Heck Defender, actually. Oh, oh. <laughs> All right, you, you know, <laughs> well, let me yeah, put Steve, this, you just lost me. Let me put it this way. <laughs> From 1962 to 1964, he did fantastic work. After that, I'm not really defending him much anymore. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> so, All right. So let's talk about quite a thing. So right away, first page, we've got... Thor versus Hercules. So this is a brand new character who's been introduced. Hercules, I think, is a great look. It's a look that he still has these very bizarre, very strappy sandals. Now, <laughs> there are strappy sandals, and then there are strappy sandals. And these are strappy sandals that go all the way up the thigh. And then he's got this bizarre headgear that he still has off and on to this day. And a big belt with an H on it. And his sandals also have little H's on them. And he's carrying around a mace. They were wise to say that Thor was good to have a non-cutting weapon instead of giving Thor a sword that he would have to slice people open and have a lot of blood. Thor couldn't be the only one to have a phallic symbol. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so they gave them both bludgeoning weapons so they can just wail on each other without any blood. <laughs> so what, but I would say that right away on this first page, this is terrible quite of inks in that the inking on 
Hercules's arm, you've got about a thousand lines, a thousand little scratchy lines to ink Hercules's two arms. And when he just desperately needed a brush, are what? <laughs> but you you would disagree, George. Well, my my argument there is yes, and I totally agree with you. As an artist, I can look at what that page is, for example, like you've just mentioned, and totally agree with you on application. But I look at Thor, and and mind you, consider, which I'm sure you guys have debated this or talked about this over the years, consider Kirby was doing a lion's share of the Marvel Universe at that oh, yeah. time. And I think the, the distinction of all of that really became thin. You had to get somebody who had a style, for lack of a better word. And though you may not like Vince, I thought his style that he brought, especially to Kirby's work, was very distinctive. And as it was represented in Thor, I, I totally appreciated it because he really, to me, gave Asgard and Loki and, and you know, Odin and all those guys a definite look. True, it was probably something that could have used a brush or maybe some other uh, inking implements that, I don't know, maybe Vince just was not aware of. But it really <laughs> definitely gave that book, in my opinion, a look to it that I, I personally enjoy. Once they get into those, um, you know, the untailed stories of Asgard, oh, yeah. I really appreciated it because Vince was doing this whole thing because it didn't take place on Earth. It was in Asgard and it had its own look. And as a result, uh, I think that was because of his inks. That's interesting. I mean, at first he was just doing Tales of Asgard in the back of the book, and you had Chick Stone doing the front half of the book. Right. And I was always like, oh, I love Chick Stone so much. And then, oh, Coda inks the back half. And then at some point, Chick Stone is gone and Coda is inking the whole book and keeps inking the whole book for about five years. And, well, see, uh, there, there's the argument, though. I, I agree with you because Chick also started in the Fantastic Four. And yeah. I, the only thing about Chick, and he, he was such an accomplished inker and he got the job done. But therein lies the problem. He got the job done. I don't think he had a distinctive style when it came to Kirby's work. You look at his stuff, and I can probably tell you that Chick did ink something if I look at it, but I couldn't tell you the, uh, I guess, in, in Inker's terms, I couldn't tell you that he embellished Kirby as much as Sinnott did, or in this case, Vince Coletta. That yeah. that distinction, I I really feel is what, in my opinion, makes Vince that much better on Thor and Sinnott on um, Fantastic Four because these guys brought something to the table. Whereas Chick, you know, and no no offense to him, I just thought he was very serviceable to the project. That's funny. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. And the great tragedy is that it's going to be just caught out on Thor for the next five years. Sinnott is taking over Fantastic Four this month. Oh, is he? Yeah. Kaleida has just inked five issues of Fantastic Four that I think are the worst inked ever issues of Fantastic Four. <laughs> and then this was this issue, this annual marks the end of Kaleida's run on Fantastic Four. And then this month, starting in the main book, Sinat takes over. And I'm like, oh, just one month off. Sinat <laughs> <laughs> this annual. <laughs> like, oh, it's such a tragedy. But let's look at Thor first. So we have sure. when Titans clash, Thor versus Hercules, we begin. Now it's very unclear when the story is set. It could be set in modern day Thor continuity. Presumably it's not. Presumably this is set more in Tales of Asgard style continuity. We've got Thor and Loki are riding through Jotunheim. Jotunheim? Jotunheim? Something uh, like I that. I would say Jotunheim, but who Jotunheim. knows? <laughs> they find two storm giants that are trying to tunnel from Jotunheim to Olympus to attack the gods of Olympus. 
and which has never been mentioned in the Marvel universe before. And then, well, and, and, and they say, and they uh, imply that the storm giants actually originated from Olympus and were banished from Olympus to Jotunheim, which is ah. a little weird. <laughs> that is very strange. Yes. So then Thor attacks them. And while he is fighting them, he accidentally smashes open the hole that they're digging into Olympus and falls through. It causes an avalanche and he lands in Olympus. And right away, Kirby, who has done such heroic work creating this wonderful world of Asgard, is instantly loving Olympus just as much. He is. Uh, Olympus looks great. The creatures of Olympus look great. There's satyrs and centaurs galloping about it looks like maybe Dionysus in the front maybe Venus plucking a harp can I talk about that yeah. that panel that you're uh referencing so this is on the bottom of page four um and there's some of what I think is kind of the best argument for Coletta and the best argument against Coletta here in the same panel one of the best arguments for Coletta is I really like the look of the uh of Pan's legs and of the centaurs uh, legs and under and you know belly and all that sort of stuff that it's kind of gestural and um you know sort of building the shape up using those scratchy lines rather than with contour lines which does as george's was saying give him a kind of distinctive look that no one else would have brought to this and as a matter of fact when i saw his work in the 80s that was some of the stuff that really made me think oh i kind of like this guy before i went back to the 60s and saw mm. oh yeah he really did do a lot of terrible stuff on a lot of books <laughs> but um but then also at the same time over here with the woman playing the liar there are some really awkward tangents that are created that you could lay this on Kirby, but really, as an inker, I would say that it's the inker's job to take things like this and fix them, right? So, uh, <laughs> so the 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 um, gown that she's wearing, or the toga, or whatever you would call it, is draped from her right shoulder across her left breast. And that line merges directly into the line with the lower half of her arm. And they're both exactly the same weight line. And they're the same weight line as the strings of the lyre. And, you know, it just that's one area where it's like, uh, dude, you know, <laughs> but uh, but, uh, you know, so like I said, we've got sort of the best of Coletta and not quite the worst of Coletta, but some, sure, uh, true, some problems true. with him here. Okay. And uh, I have problems mm -hmm. when people don't close their lines. And he does he mm -hmm. does a lot of that. Whereas an inker, you should definitely, if you're outlining something, close the line. Don't leave it open unless that's your style. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by close the line? Uh well, in that in that uh, panel four, if you look closely at her leg, the, the line between ah. her knee is open. And little yeah. things <laughs> like that, as an artist, I mean, the layman would probably never pick something like that up. But as an artist, you know, you're looking at your work and you look, you see that sort of thing. Yeah, there's a yeah, I see what you're saying. There's a hole in her knee so that the colorist just had to distinguish between the grass and her and her knee, uh, which is not hard, Coda but you're sure. doing it. Yes. Um, but uh, yes, so bad. But uh, so then Thor then is exploring Olympus. He's trying to find a way back to Asgard and then he comes up to a bridge and there is Hercules on the other side of the bridge and Hercules says, hold, cross no further. You may cross yon bridge only after Hercules has done so. And Thor says, if there be room for only one to cross at a time, then that one shall be Thor, who backs off to no man. So 
And this does fit more with the characterization of Thor in Tales of Asgard. This is, you know, sort of early young brash Thor. I don't think the Thor of modern day stories would do this. He is obviously being a tremendous dick. They're both being tremendous dicks. <laughs> well, also, isn't this on a deeper level? Isn't isn't this part of the, oh God, who wrote the, the Art of War? Sun Tzu? Yeah. Isn't this part of that story that two warriors meet at a bridge, at the opposite ends of a bridge, and that, you know, they sort of size each other up before they cross? because the other wouldn't let the other cross. And I always thought that, whereas Kirby's knowledge of all this stuff was so vast, that's what, what he did, how, why he had them meet at a bridge that only one person could cross. Hmm. Ah, okay, I did not know this. I've never read The Art of War. This is where my brain is very differently, is it was just reminding me of the Dr. Seuss story about the East moving Zacks and the West moving Zacks. (laughs) 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 Not that I thought one inspired the other, but I'm just like, oh, that's the one thing this reminded me of. That's why you have lost every war you've ever fought, Steve. You're like, you're like, they're like, didn't you read The Art of War? And you're like, well, no, I read Dr. Seuss's The Sneetches and other stories. Isn't that close enough? Well, there's always a bunch of trivia in uh, in Kirby's stuff because obviously we I, I was born in the late 60s, so I wasn't around for any of this until I was, right. was a little bit older. But, you know, we're all influenced by the times that we're in. And, you know, while the Batman's Joker may seem very fresh and innovative at the time, whoever um, had actually created the Joker, really, I think it, it had known that he was watching the movie called The Something Laughs or The, some, the Man some, Who Laughs. The Man, yeah, who, the man laughs. who Laughs. Right. And if you look at that character, he looks very much what the Joker looks like today. So oh, yeah. I just assume that artists and the. I certainly fall victim to this sort of thing. Uh, and I can even tell you, Bishop is basically the Terminator done for comic books. So the things that happen around us at the times, I think we're very much influenced. And with Kirby, you can see that. I'm sure people who were around that could tell you a little more, but um, just with, with and not to, not to skip around, but going back to that first page, if you notice that first page is, I want to say that's Muhammad Ali. That was a poster for ah. Muhammad Ali fighting mm. somebody. I don't know the accuracy of that, but I do know it's a boxing poster. I saw a picture of it years ago okay. where, you know, the two Clash of the Titans type thing come together. So that's where Kirby definitely got the inspiration mm. for that page. That's you're funny. Just, you're right. I do kind of recognize that from an old like Muhammad Ali poster or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. So let's what? go and talk about Hercules a little bit and the origin of him. So Hercules, right away, we have a problem in that he is going to the world of Greek myths. But Hercules is not a Greek character. The Roman version was Hercules. But from this point on in the Marvel Universe, they will use mainly Greek names for the gods, except for they'll use Hercules instead of Heracles. And Uh. they'll do the same thing in DC until George Perez tries to fix it and forces them to use Heracles. And this was because the other one in the Marvel Universe is they use Pluto instead of Hades. Oh, that's funny. But this is but this is because there were a bunch of Italian movies, a bunch of Italian American co-productions, Hercules movies, often starring Steve Reeves and uh, Mm -hmm. not to be confused with George Reeves, who played Superman. And this sort of inspired it. So they talk about how they gotten all these letters saying, when will Thor fight Hercules? Well, that was because of all these Hercules movies. So when I read these comics to my son, I always do with Thor's voice as sort of like uh, Chris Hemsworth, but a little bit deeper. And then I always, <laughs> and then the question is, one of the big problems with Hercules as a character is that he speaks 
in the exact same speech patterns as Thor. And he is also in this sort of Shakespearean English, which, you know, is mm-hmm. neither here nor there, doesn't match at all with the origins of either character. But I always, in order to differentiate the characters, I sort of always based my Hercules basically on the Steve Reeves, on the person who dubbed Steve Reeves' voice in the old Hercules movies. But specifically, there was an old Saturday Night Live skit where they had <laughs> Bill Murray play Hercules with a badly dubbed person doing the English. And I always based my Hercules very much on that character. <laughs> well, what, weren't those voices where they, they didn't have an accent to them, did they? They just spoke very clear and concise. Yes. My my Hercules talks like this. I am Hercules. So that's, <laughs> that's my voice. But so then he... He's fighting Hercules here. Hercules. So they're like, who we're going to have a fight as to who gets to cross this bridge. Hercules is like, first thing I'm going to do, destroy the bridge. It's like, Hercules, I don't think you understand how this works. (laughs) You have by default. Well, if he can't play with his toys, nobody is. Of course not. No one has ever accused Hercules of being that bright. No. Um, (laughs) Occasionally, people will write Hercules. Like, I really loved the Greg Pak Hercules comic. Greg Pak, Fred Van Lent, co-written Hercules comic of uh, about uh, 10 or 15 years ago. And uh, but occasionally they would actually try to, like, work in like, oh, yes, this is the same Hercules who killed his family. And it's like, "Um, do you you (laughs) want to do that? You could have just let that lie. But anyway, so then. They then have, I will quickly sum up the rest of the issue because it is a bunch of four panel pages, which is a huge slugfest. We have them just oh, yeah. wailing on each other for well, it, the it delivers of the book. on its title. It says Clash of the Titans, and that's all you really care about. Yeah. It is a Clash of the Titans. We see Thor do something he's never done before. He loops his hammer around the guy and then flings the guy around using his hammer. We've never seen him do that before. They are wailing at each other, beating the crap at each other at one point. Unfortunately, they're not really. I always prefer it when people like have to go like, oh, I can't fight my way out of this problem. I have to outsmart. Well, there is no outsmarting going on here. There. So <laughs> Hercules at one point finds a sort of pole with a sculpture on its sculpture of a head of a bust on its top. And then he wraps it around Thor and Thor just says, but then in a savage paroxysm of anger, Thor's iron muscles begin to tense and swell as his fighting heart rages <laughs> within him until Thor defeated by Hercules never. So they're not exactly, neither one is actually outsmarting the other in any way here. They're just tapping into even greater fighting heart rages within them. They then fight it out for several pages. And then Zeus shows up. First time we've seen Zeus in the Marvel Universe too. And there's definitely a thing in Lee Kirby comics or Kirby Lee comics, if you prefer to say, where there is a sense like if these are both supposed to be bankable characters, then we can never know who would win in a fight. So mm-hmm. we can't have For either sure. Hercules or Thor win because we want them each to be able to sell comics. So mm-hmm. Thor breaks up the fight. It's a complete draw. We have no idea who would have won. They then decide that they respect each other and they're friends with each other now. And Zeus sends Thor back to Loki. Then he sees the entire Passage going to Olympus closes up and they ride off together. So that is the end of the issue. And then we have an amazing two page drawing of Asgard by Kirby. Oh, yeah. Um, he loved these sorts of things. Go oh, ahead. Yeah. And you can see clearly a big influence on the MCU, Asgard, more yes. so yes. than, you know, as opposed to Walt Simonson's Asgard, which looked very much like a Norwegian village. Yeah. This is much more of a sci fi type Asgard, which 
is was much more of the inspiration of the MCU Asgard. It's much more of a sci-fi Asgard than a fantasy Asgard. Mm-hmm. It also indicates that there is a shopping center off screen. <laughs> yeah, show us the shopping center, dude. You can't just show a little arrow saying to shopping center. Well, as an artist, you sit there going, God, there is no discernible vanishing point here. How does he establish perspective for something like this? Yeah, you're right. There's the perspective is shifts from building to building to a certain extent. And it's beautiful, but it works. You're going, I don't care. But yeah, as an artist, I could, I'm such a literal artist. I could never draw a two page spread like that because I don't have it in me to let go that much. (laughs) And I think that's where Kirby was. He could just let go. Because even with the, when uh, I'm sure you guys have done the uh, Black Panther. We haven't gotten to that yet. Oh, okay. Because when you see, yeah, Wakanda. Oh my God, it is so well done. Yes. Just gorgeous. Just Kirby absolutely just clearly loves this book. And one gets the feeling that he just submitted this two-page drawing of Asgard without being asked to. Oh, sure. Yeah. He's like, here, also, I did this. Here, just put out the publish it. <laughs> and, you know, to his credit, for whatever fights they had, and they really, you know, you would hear, oh, they, they fought for years, but they made up, they whatever. It was, it's obvious, Stan respected Jack very oh, yeah. much. I mean, Stan was the businessman and he was the figurehead. But you could tell he really respected Jack and what he could do because he had the insight and enough to see this guy for what he could be, not for what he was doing at the time with the romance comics, maybe in the 50s or, you know, working over at D.C. or even with the Captain America stuff in the 40s. This was something I think Stan could see in Jack that, man, this guy, if we if we could just let him go and let him be who he wants to be. We're going to get back to tenfold. It would have been more respectful to hire a different inker, which he did on Fantastic Four. He's like, <laughs> we could do better on Fantastic Four. Let's hire her. And then as soon as you can tell, as soon as Stan saw Sinat's inks on Fantastic Four, because Fantastic Four had had a lot of inkers. And then once Sinat arrived, Stan is like, this is gold. And he knew it was gold. Why he could not then say, hey, Joe, why don't you ink both Thor and Fantastic Four? <laughs> we'll never know. But Well, uh, con- consider that too, because when Jack did leave to go to DC, you know, Joe was used as a leverage. He's like, well, you can leave, but he's not going with you. This guy yeah, that- is staying here. And then, as it turns out, Vince did go with him. Vince moved to DC at the same <laughs> well, no, time I he mean, did. Well, Vince, sure, but I'm, I'm right. saying Joe, who obviously, and I don't question that Joe is the more superior inker here. Marvel understood that enough to go, he's not going. This guy has essentially defined or, again, embellished the look of the Marvel universe. Because I, I remember talking to, oh God, who did the Hulk forever? Herb Trimpey. Herb Trimpey, thank you. Herb, I remember talking to Herb at a show once, and he was like, "Every they really wanted your stuff if you were coming in. Well, they wanted you to look like Kirby, obviously, but they really wanted your stuff if it was important enough. They would put Joe on you because Joe knew how to emulate Kirby and thereby take your stuff and make it look more like Kirby. Hmm. And they were very much in that form, just like, I guess, DC was very much in their form that they didn't like Kirby's Superman faces, so they would redo them. Marvel had this look that Joe definitely helped to define. Yeah. 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 I think this is a great issue. I think it's a great fight. I wish it was maybe a little less than just a slugfest. I wish Thor maybe had to take his way out of it. (laughs) But if you like to see Jack Kirby drawing two strong people fighting each other, it is great. Hercules... 
would go on to be a really great character. It's funny what Hercules would go on to be. He would go on to be sort of the more comedic version of Thor, the sort of more buffoonish yeah, um, braga, yeah. braggart version of <laughs> braggadocious version of Thor. And it's interesting when they went, went ahead and then made the MCU, they sort of the MCU Thor, especially as he develops in the later two movies, is almost more similar to the to the Marvel Hercules than yes. it is the Marvel Thor. Yeah. This sort of hubris, braggart, somewhat buffoonish character played by Chris Hemsworth is a lot like Marvel's Hercules and less like Marvel's Thor, who is always a more confident, serious character. Most of that mm-hmm. got started with uh, Bob Layton in the 80s when they did the when they started the limited series with yes. uh, they did a, a Hercules limited series. And I have to say, having met Bob and befriended him, I think Bob was doing a lot of his uh, autobiography <laughs> as told through Hercules, because when you meet Bob, he is very much like that hercules character and he's the guy you really and if you read the book he's the guy you really want to hang out with hercules and he's a guy who, if you know if you're with him this is going to be an adventure we don't know where we're going to end up but we are on an adventure and if you've ever hung out with bob layton that is very much the case that's great so at this point hercules is going to become a regular character in the thor comic a regular sort of guest star occasional guest star and then he will eventually join the Avengers once Roy Thomas realizes he's not going to be able to use Thor in the Avengers. He's like, well, you've got the character Hercules now, and he's second best. And he's sort of begins to move Hercules in this direction of being sort of the more sort of buffoonish bracket version of Thor. And you're, yeah, but you're totally right. The first person who said this is a really a character who could sustain his own book was Bob Layton in those two four issue miniseries. And then eventually, finally, he got his own regular book from Fred Van Len and Greg Pak. But I think that this is. This is a great issue. What, uh, Steve? What do you think uh, of this issue? Well, I, I, what, one thing I'm going to disagree with you on is saying that you know I wish they had sort of you know uh, had to be a little more clever. I'm often with you on that, but not here. They <laughs> just <laughs> the two of them just wailing on each other for this you know. 10 12 page session <laughs> is uh i mean it's 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 gorgeous it's it's fantastic it is exactly what i want <laughs> yeah you read this and it's it's like a godzilla movie of the yeah. time you're like we just want two mon- monsters fighting each other that's really all we want you don't really have to <laughs> even explain it i just want to see two monsters fighting each other yep yep something like that Georges, did you have anything any last things to say about uh, oh, the uh, just the, that i am a little i've always wondered and they stand only and i think this was one of the cases where jack sort of said you know what i'm not going to say anything i'm going to let him write it out but that whole transition from asgard to where olympus you know it's only really one panel and it's it's one paragraph that stan writes you know he's falling falling this this but i'm going where did he go by the the you know, was there magic involved? Or this is a big thing because you know, how do you get there if not by 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 chance? You know, is this something where Odin kind of sometimes goes and sees Zeus and said, "Hey, let's go have a drink or something"? Or you know, is this just does this happen often? You know, can Loki conceivably get to Odin or any of those characters? So I I always thought that was the in a very well done book of just giving the people what they want. I would have appreciated a little more explanation as to how he got there. You don't have to give me the whole book, but just a little more than a paragraph. Yeah. 
Well, they'll much later make it clear that, like, you know, Zeus and Odin serve on a corporate board together and that they're, you know, they, they, they're, all, they're all pals. But here are the implication is that they, there hasn't been any communication between Asgard and Olympus for uh, at least thousands of years. It's all very unclear. But again, it's not right. even clear if this is a present day story or a story that's set in the past. Well, so yeah, there's this some, some, some work board in the great celestial plane where all these... Uh, I, these godlike characters have to go in and have a punch card at the beginning of the day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, Steve, right. should we move on to Spider-Man Annual Number Two? I think that it is time to do so. This is the Amazing Spider-Man: uh, The Wondrous Worlds of Doctor Strange. So, on the cover, you just see a montage of Spidey images, and it gives you the impression that, oh, don't worry, it says all the stuff about Doctor Strange, but don't worry, this is going to have lots of Spider-Man. Look at it right here. Well, <laughs> it, it does not. I would bet you a fair amount of money that Steve Ditko wanted there to be a Strange Tales annual. He wasn't going to get it. And so since he was doing all the plotting at this point and basically just coming in with a stack of pages and giving them to Stan and saying, here's a story for this month, that he just said, well, OK, we're doing a Spider-Man annual. I'll just turn it into a Doctor Strange annual. Why not? We should explain that he was actually getting credit on the page as solo plotter at the time in both Strange Tales, Doctor Strange Stories, and Spider-Man for about four months at this point. Steve had been getting solo plotting credit on the page, as indeed he does in this annual. Mm. Yes. I would further that to say Ditko just had a plot or gave Stan a plot and said, here, this is generally what I'm doing. And Stan was so yeah. busy doing other things that once this book came in, it became a situation where it's too late to do anything else. So we just have to go with what we have. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. as is so often the case mm -hmm. where Stan generally being a dick about other people <laughs> getting when Stan is forced to give someone else a writing credit, he often complains about it on the splash page on the letters page, wherever he possibly can. And here he is. He's, I don't know, where would you put this, this, uh, splash page thing on the general level of stand dickishness i would say it's a it's at a four maybe yeah yeah i i i think it's about right i mean it's it's if if his uh description of wally wood's uh written issue of daredevil was a 10 uh <laughs> this is yeah i'd say a four so well, not not to defend stan but consider right. the times again oh, yeah. of what what's going on and what these guys had been going through their whole lives in comic books you had one station in life if you were an artist you drew if you were a writer you wrote and everybody had one station and when you tried to step out of that station you it was it was frowned upon for the most part you really were looked down upon if you tried to be an inker who was an artist or a writer and, and all of that and i think stan was just following suit with a lot of the the history that was going on at that time. He gets a lot of credit for going ahead and agreeing with Steve, okay, I will give you solo punning credit, but he would occasionally have things like this. He says, written and edited by the toast of Marvel, Stan Lee, plotted and drawn by the boast of Marvel, Steve Dicko, rendered and bordered by the ghost of Marvel, Sam Rosen. And then it has a little note where it says, this could be called our Be Nice to Stevie Ditko issue. <laughs> we wanted to feature a really offbeat yarn for Spidey's annual, and Steve Arino dreamed this one up. The fact that he also draws Doc Strange may have had something to do with it. So, ready or not, here we go. <laughs> and he begins to you. you argue that that was just, well, not to anger Steve in a way, to say that, hey, you know, we, we understand what you're doing, and we cheekily respect it as well. 
Yes, yes. He is he is walking a, a thin line here. Whenever you have two dudes who are joshing each other around, there's always there is always a, a thin line being walked and uh they are joshing each other around. But he's been saying like the fact that he also draws Doc Strange, you might also point out he also writes Doc Strange. <laughs> like he is the solo <laughs> plotter for both Doctor Strange and Spider-Man, which may have more to do with the fact that he's in this issue uh, other than he is the penciler. Well, and, and there too, they were putting out a lot of books at this point. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah. At this point, no. It's funny. They had both, both Kirby and Dicko had recently shrunk down the amount of books they were doing. So Kirby at this point was in the process of shrinking down to just Fantastic Four and Thor, although he was still doing layouts and a bunch of other books. And Dicko had shrunk down to just Doctor Strange and Spider-Man. And they were really pouring. It was really clear at this point that the two books Kirby was pouring his heart and soul into were Fantastic Four and Thor. And the two books Dicko was pouring his heart and soul into were Doctor Strange and Spider-Man. He was no longer on Hulk at this point. Yeah, for sure. So, so, uh, but yeah, it's really disconcerting to see Spider-Man in this mystical, you know, mystical dimension here when he's usually so anchored in the world of bricks and mortar. And we're going to be seeing more of that as we go through the issue. So Spider-Man is bored. There's nothing going on, no crime he can find. And then that's the last we see of him for a few pages. So, (laughs) yes. I really love the inking on Spider-Man in that first panel of him climbing down the building on page two. Yeah. It looks like something that you would more expect to see in the like late 70s or 80s or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, yeah, pretty nice. So uh, we but then... again, as an as an artist, you look at that panel and that perspective is really wonky. Sure. So that's 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 nitpicky. Right. Yeah. Right. So uh, we then meet Zandu, who uh, finds these two big bruisers who are in a barroom brawl. He then basically takes over their minds and turns them into his automatons. Uh, He, of course, is a weirdo. He has a fedora and a suit over whatever his mystical outfit is. And he's got a shaded monocle, a reverse Hitler mustache. (laughs) <laughs> and a uh, and a cowl on under his fedora. So <laughs> for people out there who aren't seeing what I'm talking about, basically, it's you shave the area directly under your nose and then still have like a big handlebar mustache sticking out <laughs> from the area right outside of that. I mean, in terms of yeah, conceptual designs, Ditko was never the best, I have to say. George, just, I got to disagree. I love Ditko's character designs. I always love them. And uh, I think this issue is say is uh testament the two goons are not are not especially memorable but uh but i like sandu a lot he's he's a character who will show up a lot over the years he will occasionally pop back up in various comics and um the wand of one tomb which he is about to create also will show up <laughs> quite a bit over the years and i think he's a nice memorable well and i you know i agree okay. with you to a degree i think his stuff looks very dated though a lot of his conceptual oh, sure. designs remind oh, yeah. me of the 60s and yeah uh Jim Shooter, I was uh, working with Jim Shooter over at Defiant, where he had hired uh, Ditko to do a book with him. And I was really privy to a lot of these pages coming out. And it just, and while, you know, this was the 90s, I was looking at his work thinking, God, this looks so retro. And, yeah. and that's fine. Not to say that's anything wrong with it. But it just never occurred to me that his stuff was timeless, the way Kirby's creations look timeless. I think you've got a good point. I think that's true. Although Dicko still at the very end of his career created Speedball, whose character that is stuck around uh, for all these years. <laughs> and co-created Squirrel Girl. Oh, right. He co-created Squirrel Girl. I always forget that. Oh, it did he really? Yeah. A huge character right now. I totally forgot that. 
Yeah, but, uh, yeah. yeah. So he was still he still had the stuff, but uh, you're right. His stuff looked a lot more dated in the '80s than uh, some of the Kirby stuff. Although the Kirby stuff also was looking pretty dated in the 80s but uh in the 90s but uh, uh, man i don't know you look at galactus today and that yeah. cat looks incredible i think what we're saying is the art he was producing in the 80s uh yeah. was oh not, for sure for sure yeah, no i mean conceptual right. designs okay yeah. all right yeah um yeah. so um zandu he is trying to get the other half of the wand of Watum. He has one half. Doctor Strange has the other. This will give him great mystical power. And so he sends his two mindless goons out to get the other half from Doctor Strange. So one of my favorite comics is the Busiek Perez JLA Avengers crossover from 2004. And Busiek sort of says, like, I'm going to have them fighting over every single MacGuffin in either the Marvel or DC universe. So they've got 12 objects, six from Marvel and six from DC that they're that they're fighting over. And one of the six from Marvel is the Wand of Watum. So a high compliment to this issue to be, you know, up there along with the Infinity Gauntlet and several other objects from Marvel <laughs> Comics that they're fighting over in the JLA Avengers series. So in the midst of a very weird issue, we have an even weirder line. In the middle of page five, Doctor Strange is looking at an ancient scroll. And he says, on the surface, this is an ancient recipe for borscht. But if I read between the faded lines, and I guess he's going to find a spell there, but it's like, an ancient recipe for borscht. What? <laughs> what on earth is going on there? So anyway, and it's he, literally engaging in borscht comedy here. <laughs> there are times well, you could accuse Stan of having borscht comedy. This is literal borscht comedy. I guess yes. for those of us who don't know what borscht is, what what is that? Oh, it's it's a Russian soup. It's like you know the uh, the, na the national sort of peasant dish of Russia. Gotcha. But you know because a lot of the Jewish immigrants in the U.S. came from Russia, uh, the Borscht Belt is sometimes what they call the area up in like upstate New York and Pennsylvania and stuff where um, lots of Jewish families would vacation, and there would be comedians who would work the Borscht Belt. And so, uh, uh, so yes, this is Borscht Belt comedy here, <laughs> as Matt <laughs> points out. So these two bruisers break in, and Doctor Strange is like, "Oh, no, no problem. I'll just go ahead and use a spell to confuse them or turn them around or whatever." But then realizes they are brainless, so he can't do that, and they knock him unconscious. They then break apart everything in the Sanctum Sanctorum until they find the other half of the Wand of Watum when they leave. And then we're suddenly reminded that this isn't a Doctor Strange story, that this is actually <laughs> supposed to be a Spider-Man story. Because <laughs> we then, you know, finally see Spider-Man show back up after like, what, four pages he's been missing? missing? So uh, after this boring night of not finding any crime, he then finds these two sleepwalking goons uh, coming out of Doctor Strange's place, and he gets into a big fight with them. Of course, since they can't feel pain, he is having a hard time fighting them, even though he should be able to take them easily. And they eventually knock Spider-Man out. Uh, well, he's mostly unconscious, but he's froggy, but conscious enough that he's able to grab a spider tracer and throw it at the leg of one of the two mindless goons. So they bring the prize back to Zandu. He now is like, I am now all powerful. I can do whatever I wanted to do. So we see that he's now opening up a lot of these interdimensional portals like Doc we always see Doctor Strange going through. 
And then he's able to pull up a vision of the knocked out Doctor Strange. Now, oddly enough, he's saying Doctor Strange shall be my first victim. But instead of attacking Doctor Strange through this portal, he instead just blows up a statue that's right behind Doctor Strange, which uh, seems weird. But uh, yes. before <laughs> stretching before, it out. Yeah, just a little bit. Buying time for Spider-Man to actually show up and distract the guy. So Spider-Man then shows up because he's followed the spider tracer. but. Xandu is able to use his uh, his power to go ahead and transport Spider-Man to some mystic other dimension. But Spider-Man outsmarts him and actually grabs the Wand of Watoom with his web as he's disappearing through this portal. So this is bad for Xandu. Right? <laughs> this, was, this was the whole thing that was going to give him the power to, to, to do what he was going to do. So uh, he then goes and grabs his automaton goons to go send into the portal after Spider-Man. So at the bottom of page 12, we once again have one of these just really disconcerting images of Spider-Man. Again, always seems so rooted in New York City and in brick buildings and, mm -hmm. you know, real solid environments. And then to see him dropped into the middle of this floating, mystical, psychedelic, interdimensional, you know, freak out really is unnerving. Yeah, we see him actually sort of standing on something and casting a shadow, which is not something Dicko has ever had to deal with before, of like because <laughs> he's always had floaty Doctor Strange going to these places and not having to stand on anything. But he sort of feels this need to, you know, actually have some weight here for the first time with Spider-Man. Well, yeah, against the background like that, if I can borrow a title, he just doesn't look amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, he yeah, he just looks he looks strange. <laughs> so uh, on page 13, uh, we see the goons arrive in the same location, the same mystic location as Spider-Man. And Ditko does a really good minimalist job of showing these goons arriving through some plane of existence that is not visible to us so it's like they're they're walking through an invisible barrier that we can't see and they just you know they sort of look like kitty pride coming through a brick wall but you can't see the brick wall right yeah um really and cool. he, yeah he does a really good job with that and that that's that's tougher than it looks to go ahead and pull something like that off in my opinion you know as as a point of trivia i, mm -hmm. I was talking to well I, and i hate i hope this doesn't sound like i name drop because i i am just <laughs> as fascinated as you guys and when i get the opportunity to talk to one of these heroes sure you know it, i have to tell you who it is because then you're like well who the hell was that but right. I was talking to uh, Jim Starlin once, and he said he used the Ditko stuff as as an inspiration for his stuff. Oh, of the course. way you know the the background and space and all of that weirdness, so, you know, with Captain Marvel and Adam Warlock and all that, he was using Ditko for that. Oh yeah, yes. and to name drop, I have had a dinner with Darlin before. So oh, okay, <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, don't worry, you're not uh, you're not you're not showing anybody up here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, there's in one of Adam Warlock's Starlin comics, he says, you know, dedicated to Steve Ditko, who showed us all another dimension or something like mm, that. Yeah, he good, uh, good. It yeah. was uh, very much. You see so much Starlin in this issue. It's interesting Ditko's influence on Starlin, on Marshall Rogers, on various people is more obvious. But one thing we talked a lot about on this show is his influence on Frank Miller, which is yes. less obvious. But this is 
Frank Miller didn't do that much Spider-Man work himself and didn't do much Doctor Strange work, although there was famously a house at once saying that Frank Miller was going to take over as the regular artist on Doctor Strange, and then that never happened. But the ultimate, there have been many tributes to this issue over the years. There was a great issue of the Untold Tales of Spider-Man that was a direct sequel to this issue. But the most famous I would say, or the greatest tribute to this issue was Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 14, written by Denny O'Neill and with pencils and I think inks by Frank Miller. And it's sort of a sequel to this issue. And oh, it's right. another yeah, yeah. Spider-Man uh, Doctor Strange annual. Well, I had read that Frank just, the reason he was so successful on something like Daredevil was that he just wasn't comfortable with the with the supernatural. He, he said, I'm, I'm more of a, very much a, a, a you know a sort of nuts and bolts kind of an artist and i thrive in the real world quote unquote as opposed to you know drawing the fantastic four the avengers or something that would have taken him into another range that i don't think he as an artist felt comfortable drawing yeah i i agree but you but i think that it that annual was great yeah no it looked great the way he treated Sure, Doctor Strange and all the effects that he, because a lot of those effects were color holds, which I don't think they were doing a whole lot at the time. Yes. They were looking really, really good. Yes, I think that, that that annual was sort of a glimpse of what could have been that, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, again, Dick, uh, you know, Frank Miller was announced, you know, in every Marvel comic that month, they announced that Frank Miller was about to take over Doctor Strange, and instead he took over Daredevil. What a different path to take. Yeah, oh, and, for sure. And, and but yeah, what, what we've noticed, you know, what I've talked about a fair amount uh, in this show about Steve Ditko's influence on Frank Miller has to, you know, there are basically two Steve Ditko's. There is the brick and mortar, noir, New York Steve Ditko. And then there is the trippy, mystical, far out Steve Ditko. And they both are so fully realized. It's just... And, and the fact they're so far apart from each other conceptually and visually, and yet he can pull both of them off as expertly as he does is just astounding. And yeah, it was really the noirish version of Ditko that I have seen a lot of influence on Miller as we've gone through this. Oh, for sure. Well, because, you know, he, he would say that about Will Eisner, you know, and the spirit. Oh, yeah. Man, they were very similar in their backgrounds. Right. And and I think that's what Frank understood a lot and liked the very Mickey Spillane type adventure as opposed to the celestial adventure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So uh, Doctor Strange recovers from being knocked out. He then is using the Eye of Agamotto to track the goons as he goes along. And uh, I find it a nice juxtaposition, whether this was deliberate or not. To on right after the page, we see Spider-Man in this really unnatural uh, psychedelic world to then see on the top of page 14, Doctor Strange in the noirish New York world that uh, yeah. we usually see Spider-Man in. Now, it's not mm -hmm. like we haven't seen Doctor Strange in this world as well. We've seen it plenty, but I just I'm, I'm wondering if that was a deliberate juxtaposition. Mm. Doctor Strange is then able to track their path to Xandu. He then comes in and is attacking Xandu. And of course, Xandu does not have the wand of Watum. So without it, he is no match for Doctor Strange. And he's about to be defeated. But then at that point, Spider-Man shows back up through a dimensional rift with the two goons <laughs> that distracts uh, Doctor Strange and lets Xandu grab the wand one more time. So he is just about to defeat Doctor Strange. And then 
somehow he ends up with his body outside of the building, which isn't entirely clear how it happened, but he leaves his body floating there as he sends his ectoplasmic form to find Spider-Man to go get help. He's able to uh, unhypnotize the goons. So then Doctor Strange returns to his body, Spider-Man returns to Xandu, and they're then able to double-team him and keep him off balance enough until they can... Separate the Wand of Watoom from him once again and web him up like a common criminal. Uh, Doctor Strange then says, I realize now that the Wand of Watoom is too potent, too menacing to ever fall into other hands. And so my mystic amulet will drain every bit of power out of it until all that remains is a harmless, simple ornament. The threat of Watoom exists no more. You've just introduced this MacGuffin called the Wand of Watoom. It is not. The threat of Watoom certainly will exist more in the future. <laughs> I mean, don't, you know, don't, don't try to don't try to pull that on us. We know better than that. <laughs> I think it falls into that dreaded third act when you have to sum everything up. Oh, yeah. And you realize, well, I don't really have a good ending for this. I just, you know. <laughs> then the two heroes take leave of each other. And one of the things when they actually have their introduction, you know, when they actually finally introduce themselves to each other after the fight is over, it was just reminding me of that uh, moment from, uh, was it Infinity War? Where Spider-Man <laughs> yes. comes up to Doctor Strange and says, hi, I'm Peter. And he says, I'm Doctor yeah. Strange. Oh, <laughs> we're using the fancy names. Well, then I'm Spider-Man. <laughs> just made me think of that. Which, yes. uh, yeah, that was classic. Yes. So, so yes, this was, believe it or not, a Spider-Man annual. <laughs> uh, not a Doctor Strange annual. It wasn't a Doctor Strange annual. It was a Spider-Man annual. Well, could you argue it was more of a team-up? You could, but it was heavier. It, it was set in Doctor Strange's world, and it seemed to have, I think, more pages with Doctor Strange on it than with Spider-Man. Yes. Um, and even the Doctor, the Spider-Man pages we did have, over half of them were in the Doctor Strange <laughs> worlds. So, um, yeah, I, I I argue that this is a Doctor Strange annual with a Spider-Man cameo instead of the other way around. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> what you going to do? <laughs> well, no, I'm not complaining at all because I, as much as I love Ditko's Spider-Man, which is one of the greatest comics of all time, I would say Ditko's Doctor Strange is even better. And I am <laughs> so happy that we got to have that Dicko uh, Shanghai Spider-Man and uh, used the Spider-Man annual as a way to give us a Doctor Strange annual. I think it's absolutely wonderful. I think this is a fantastic issue. The Wanda Watoom would stick around for a long time. Sandu would stick around for a long time. I agree this isn't, he's not the greatest Doctor Strange villain, and this isn't the greatest actual story. But the thing I love so much about Dicko Doctor Strange is seeing the worlds that he creates and to see a tremendous amount of Dicko dimension building in this issue and see and get to see actual Spider-Man in this world, casting a shadow, having to stand on a little orb and bringing some of his real world groundedness to this Dicko world. I think it's just delightful. Yeah, cool. So I will go ahead and pass it back. All right, so let's get to, if I describe every plot development in Fantastic Four annual number three, <laughs> we will be here for quite some time, and it is already rather late in the evening. That's its own show. This is the most plot-packed 20 pages in all of Marvel history, I want to say. And Bar we, none. 
Even here on the cover, we have special king size annual, 72 big pages, Fantastic Four, number three, 1965, the sensational wedding of Sue and Reed, featuring the world's most colossal collection of custom characters, crazily cavorting and capering in continual combat. This is the big one. And then they actually show us almost every Marvel character, including characters who are not in this issue, like Two Gun yes. Kid, are all <laughs> on this and, cover. Well, and, and Nick Fury's on there twice. Yes. And, One, uh, once in his World War II form and once in his CIA form. Oh, you're right. I never saw that. <laughs> and we've Actually, got I, just noticed it, I just noticed it just now. <laughs> and you've got Stan earning his keep, for sure. There's so much typeface on this page. <laughs> and yeah, we have villains on the cover here who never show up on the inside. Like the leader shows up here and he is not on the inside. But so then we go ahead, we begin our book. Written by Stan Lee, drawn by Jack Kirby, tragically inked by Vince Coletta, lettered by Artie Simon, catered by the Wolfen Gang. As we were saying before, starting this month, Sinat takes over the main book. And if this annual had come out one month later, it would have been inked by Sinat. Unfortunately, this issue, well, the good thing is this issue marks the end of Coletta's association with Fantastic Four before Sinat takes over the main book. Let me just point out for everybody out there that it does not actually say tragically inked by Vince <laughs> that was that was That was Matt's editorial comment. <laughs> I wouldn't put a past Stan to write that, but he did not. If someone else had gotten writing credit, it would have said tragically written by someone else. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the fabulous FF hold a long-awaited wedding only to find Bedlam at the Baxter Building, and we begin with Dr. Doom reading a newspaper, the Daily Press. Today is the day of wedding bells for reasons Sue. Interesting, it's not the Daily Bugle. Dr. Doom then tears up the newspaper and says he's so upset that he's going to use his high-frequency emotion charger. Skillfully manipulating my high-frequency emotion charger, I can fan the flames of hatred in the heart of every evil menace in existence. I shall transform their wedding day into the day of their final destruction. So then they're getting married at the Baxter building, but when we go inside the building, it looks very fancy on the inside. It looks like a fancy <laughs> gentleman's club, which it's never looked like on the inside of the Baxter building before. So that's weird. Can, um, can you just emphasize how much of a drama queen Doom is, really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, come on, dude. They can't get married and you're like upset about it? <laughs> he is very much being a drama queen. Uh, one thing I'm going to point out here, and we start seeing this on page three, is that they get guest artists to do some of the cameos that we have in here. Really? So panel two on page three. Uh, I remember first time I read through this, I saw that and I'm like, okay, that is not Kirby and Coletta drawing mm -hmm. Patsy and Heedy there. That, that, that is somebody else. And it has been uh, suggested to me that this is actually Al Hartley coming in and drawing those two characters here. Later, when we see a glimpse of Spider-Man, that's going to be traced from the cover of issue 19 of Spider-Man. So we have a few of these little cameos where, and I'm, I'm, I think this is why they had that bit on the credits about catered by the bullpen gang, uh, ah. is you've got some little, some little, things from different folks in the bullpen oh that's funny now and when they say pat they don't mean patsy walker right yeah yes yeah oh, patsy they and Hetty. Patsy. okay and about four months earlier there was a letter in spider-man from some guy named steve gerber who suggested that it would be wild if they brought patsy into the marvel universe Huh. So four months, about four months, I forget exactly how many, but like less than six months earlier, young Steve Gerber, who is not yet a writer, but just a reader in Missouri, wrote in the suggestion. And then a few months later, here we go. Oh, yeah. nice. So so I 
I don't know how I'm going to sum up this issue. So much happens. <laughs> we begin. The thing is greeting people to the wedding. Tony Stark is there in a top hat, which I've never seen him in a top hat before with some random date. <laughs> he hasn't been doing random dates for a while. But then suddenly the puppet master comes up and tries to kill them, only to be stopped by Nick Fury and Gabe Jones. Gabe looking the many colors of Gabe Jones. <laughs> Now, he is, he is no longer looks like an African-American. We should explain uh, to the folks here at home uh, that, Georges, you are an African-American. Uh, yeah. But that is that Gabe sometimes is colored brownish, sometimes is colored grayish. In this issue, he is flat out purple. <laughs> yeah, he, 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 uh, I, you know, I, I, I declared a little bit early that black folks in the Marvel Universe had finally won the war on ashiness. Apparently it is uh apparently it's raising its ugly head once again. <laughs> well, and you know, technically that was a hard color to get down because yeah. you know they, they only had a few colors to work with. Yeah. And getting a skin tone, because I think a lot of Asians fell under that as well. Yeah. Getting those skin tones were just very difficult and the consistency because the printing wasn't always the same. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, but even just look at Gabe's hair. And like that would be a good color for Gabe's skin. Uh, yeah, you could tell what he is too. Yeah, there was never any question about it. Okay, <laughs> yeah. for anyone for anyone reading on Marvel Unlimited, like I am, uh, Gabe's hair in uh, in on page three, second to last panel in the uh, Marvel Unlimited version is Superman blue and black. So oh, no. um, okay, that, in the comics so, it's brown. So that would not be a good color. I'm reading, <laughs> no, no, that would not be good. I'm reading the original uh, scans of the original issues where it's uh, brownish hair. Anyway, so then Nick Fury and Gabe Jones stop the attack of the puppet master. They're beginning to suspect that something's up. Meanwhile, here comes Red Ghost and the Super Apes. Ben is running inside to warn that something might be going on. He runs into Professor X. Suddenly, the Mole Man tunnels up through the first floor of the Baxter Building, implying, and I guess this is already canon, that the Baxter Building is just sitting on dirt. And uh, <laughs> so basically, so, uh, tunnels up into the four professors Avery and the X-Men attack Mole Man and the Moloids, eventually force them back into the ground. Notice that Beast only has four toes on each foot. Yeah, mm. true. Um, so then... So there, I love the panel on page six where Ben is finally makes his way upstairs to warn Reed and Sue. And again, this looks nothing like we expect the Baxter building to look, but it's a really nice angle looking down at a curving staircase. I know. I think George is, I think you would say that again, what's the vanishing point here? Yeah. Um, <laughs> which there is none. I think you're, you're just going with all this guest stars. You, you don't even think of the art anymore. You're just like, keep going. Wh right. Whoever it is, who, who's next? Who's next? So, so, so I'm guessing that in the Baxter building, being a big building with all sorts of different tenants, let's just assume that there is a ballroom, basically, that you can rent that's on one of the other floors. So let's just right. go on the lower floors. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yes. Apparently, we've just never seen it before. Ben tries to warn Reed and Sue. He goes in where Sue and Alicia are, and suddenly Red goes in Super Apes attack. Um, and I love, I love that panel. It says, I, I, "I was expecting you, thing, and so was my trained baboon. His high voltage shock ray is all ready for you." And I will point out that a high voltage shock ray is basically a taser. So, uh, so, so, so the uh, the Red Ghost invented taser technology back in the sixties. And what does taser stand for? The Thomas A. Swift Electric Rifle. Oh, is it an acronym, really? <laughs> yes, based on the old Thomas Swift pulp novels. So then suddenly they are saved from Red Ghost and Super Apes by Doctor Strange, who sends them all into a Doctor Strange crazy other dimension. But 
the Kirby version. So we get to see Kirby trying to draw a Dicko Doctor Strange dimension. And it looks sort of like outer space. He's sort of he's sort of not really getting it. Yeah. Kind of negative zony or something On like that. Even though, yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Could this be proto Kirby Crackle in that panel? One of the things we've been very surprised by, George's, is that there hasn't been any Kirby Crackle yet. He has not invented it yet, still in 1965. Oh, really? But this does look kind of like proto Crackle. And, yeah. and I know, I know. It first really showed up that I noticed it in the uh, Silver Surfer Galactus issues, which we're just coming up to within the next couple of months. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think this might be the first glimpse of what will evolve into Kirby Crackle. Wow. Yeah. So then Reed finds out, sounds like something's up. A lot of people are attacking. We see Dr. Strange summoning many more villains. I will not list them all. Um, <laughs> we get a couple of pages of <laughs> Thor versus the Skrulls. We then get, um, they say to their lawyer, Matt Murdock, hey, could you tell everybody that there's going to be a delay in the wedding? I don't know if I would necessarily want my lawyer to do that, but apparently he is also <laughs> lawyer slash wedding planner. Uh, Murdoch says, nope, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to turn into Daredevil and go out and try to save the city. (laughs) And suddenly here comes Hydra driving up with a huge truck bomb. And I love this huge truck bomb, this big flatbed truck (laughs) with a huge bomb on the back that Hydra is driving up. And Daredevil then has to seize control of the truck in one of my favorite action sequences in the thing on page 12. Yeah, that Um, that panel of him jumping into the truck on page 12 is fantastic. And we have mm -hmm. already established that uh, Daredevil before this point has landed a spaceship by touch. And he (laughs) and he has just, I think, two two issues earlier, I believe, uh, driven a car through New York City by his radar <laughs> sense. So we've already established that this is a, this is good. But I love that panel. The next panel after that, where you see the uh, the original Avengers coming in, of course, they're not the current Avengers, but, you know, somehow. Uh, but yeah, Captain America's position in that one is just one of those things where it's like, wow, you guys are really trying to get this thing out fast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, nonstop. So then, yes, uh, well, it's it's combination of old and new Avengers because it's Captain America, Iron Man, and Quicksilver come up. They are fighting various other villains. I will not list them all. At one point, uh, we have Hawkeye versus Mr. Hyde and the Enchantress. And then suddenly, a safe is falling on Hawkeye. It's unclear if Enchantress has make safe fall on people's powers that we've never heard of before. <laughs> or if this is just a sheer coincidence that someone drops the safe on Hawkeye while he is in the middle of fighting these villains. All right, so, However, so, so two thoughts. One, have we already gotten to that Avengers issue? I believe we have, where uh, Hawkeye was working on tinkering with new arrow technology, and he came up with a zero-gravity arrow that then he tested on a safe that ended up shooting up into the skies of New York. And I was like, what happened to that? Where did it come down? I I submit that this is that safe. Well, you know, I think I, I, I do you one better. I think it was the Acme company that yes. had it earmarked for a coyote. Yes. And yes. they just were testing it out. So then uh, uh, Spider-Man's one uh, cameo here on page 14, panel four. This is literally traced from the cover of Amazing Spider-Man number 19. Yeah, it looks like it too. Yeah. Yeah. So then Spider-Man saves Hawkeye, webs up the safe, keeps it from falling on his head. We then get various other hero villain fights. We see Daredevil still driving the truck bomb through the city, uh, getting pestered by the Black Knight, who gets pestered by Angel, who gets pestered by Mandarin, who gets... Then suddenly we have 
five different beam shooting villains all teaming up on Iceman at the same time. Finally, on the top of page 17, we get an amazing panel with 20 different heroes and villains in it, all wailing on each other. We got Iron Man versus Andy, the amazing android. And then we, thankfully, we get some brief panels of Quicksilver versus the human top. Kirby and Lee are going like, who have we never had meet up that we should have had meet up by this point? <laughs> and like, we should have had Quicksilver and the human top. They're both green spitty guys. We uh, green fast guys have never met up. Let's get those two together. And then suddenly, as a little throwback to Fantastic Four Annual number one, Atlantis attacks. And we get a gorgeous <laughs> panel in the middle of page 18 with Atuma and all of his ships rising out of the sea. And Atuma and all of Atlantis is also attacking. It says that Dr. Doom wanted to use his emotion charger on Submariner, but accidentally used it on Atuma. This issue has been just about everything in the kitchen sink. And then suddenly the mm-hmm. plot elements come together a little bit <laughs> as it turns out Daredevil is still driving the truck bomb through the streets of New York. And then he sees, oh, there's a whole invasion of New York City. That's a good thing to hit with my truck bomb. <laughs> and he drives off the edge of a pier and blows up the entire invading fleet with Hydra's truck bomb. And uh, we then get more, even more fighting on the bottom of page 19, including the only glimpse of Kang. We just had a brief glimpse of Kang before being summoned in here. He's sort of half asleep the one time we actually see him fighting. And, and is he orange and purple in your version? Yes, or, he is yeah, orange and purple. Yeah. Which, which he's shown up as orange once or twice before. But I, I will also point out that in the last panel on page 19, uh, when the when the Watcher shows up, sorry to uh, steal your thunder on, on making that point, Mr. Fantastic says, the Watcher, but... I thought you were forbidden to interfere with other races. And he says, it is so written. And yet, (laughs) if you will dare venture into the unknown with me, you may find the key to victory. It's like the, the... the the watcher's vow is very much like the prime directive in star trek it's just, <laughs> very much it's, it's there just to be broken uh-huh. as as they say more in the breach than the observance yes mm. so then after this extremely crowded issue we finally got a big gorgeous page on page 20 with kirby's this is my favorite kirby photo collage yet where the watcher mm-hmm. finally lifts read out of all of this and takes him across a truly bizarre and trippy photo collage. And what on earth is going on here? Oh, is that an actual question? (laughs) That's an actual question. (laughs) I will not try to answer that question. Yeah, right. (laughs) To this day, I'm sure nobody knows. The Watcher continues to be a character who is always off model. No one has ever drawn the Watcher the same way twice. I think this is the first time we've seen him in just a toga without any any sort of clothes other than toga. So then they go to Reed takes the Watcher. It's like, I'm going to take you to my world. I can't just give you something to defeat everybody, but I will just let you wander and see if you want to <laughs> take something. See if right. you might find something that might help. You're getting you. warmer. You're getting warmer. <laughs> exactly. So then Reed gets something and it yeah. turns out it works well so we get this crazy pen on page 22 where reed gets a big says it had to be a subatronic time displacer capable of transporting living beings back to the immediate past they'll return to where they were before they attacked with no memory of what has happened since and he sucks all of the villains up into this little vacuum cleaner hopefully thankfully this thing can tell the difference between heroes and villains and uh, <laughs> only sucks up the villains and then it disappears it's all right it's going back to where it came from we won't speak of it anymore and then everybody celebrates 
they finally have the big wedding on the top of page 23 with Reed in his costume, uh, everyone in their costume except for Sue, who's in a wedding dress, a very sort of formal wedding dress. And then they kiss. And then Gabe, still looking purple, says, we've got two <laughs> crashers who have shown up at the wedding. And the Nick Fury won't let them in. And it turns out it's Stan and Jack. And Stan and Jack are sent away. And Stan says, I guess this is Jack. Oh, it's funny. Stan has himself taller. I guess Stan was taller than Jack. Yeah. yeah Jack is yeah, saying, yeah. how about that? Imagine them keeping us at Stan. And Stan is saying, we'll show him, Jack. Let's get back to the bullpen and start writing the next dish. So he's saying, let's start writing. So Stan is seemingly acknowledging that Kirby is, is a co-writer on this book. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And that is the end of the issue. What do you guys think about this comic? Man, I'm tired just hearing it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love it. It's it's just, it's so much fun. I thought you were just going to say it's so much. It is, well, <laughs> that too. <laughs> yes. It, that it is too. so much and it is so much fun. It, like you said, everything in the kitchen sink. The only things that are missing are the Hulk. And they make mention of the fact the Hulk never showed up and Namor. And so they then they, they point out, oh, Okay, so let's give you a reason why these two never showed up. But other than that, mm. that was it. And yeah, you got everything in here. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's just so bonkers and so fun. And, yeah. you know, this big moment, you know, it's like, oh, this wedding. How are they going to make this wedding interesting? And it's like, uh, you know, you just have the wedding be just on the last page and the previous 15 pages or whatever, or 20 pages, just be mayhem. <laughs> Which sorry, I, I hate, I hate to say that. That's mm -hmm. such a cheat, though. When you say, oh, the wedding, uh, the wedding of Reed and Sue, and right. that's only like one panel, that is such a cheat. I I can't tell you how happy I was back in the day reading Marv Wolfman and George Perez's Teen Titans when uh, Troy... Uh, Troy married... Uh... Wonder Girl got, yeah, married. And it was the whole issue. It yeah. was the whole... Nobody put on a costume for the whole thing. And I did not sit there going, I feel taken because nobody was in their costume. I enjoyed the whole damn thing. Yeah, that's a great issue. And it's a great, it's a, you're right. That's a huge example of how much comics had changed in the 20 years between this issue and that issue. And mm -hmm. you could devote a whole issue to just costumes off characterization in that book. And I think it was in that book that Dick found out that Bruce had adopted Jason Todd. And he's like, why did you never adopt me? Oh, <laughs> they, got yeah, yeah, a, yeah. they got to have that sort of an emotional. Uh, well, yeah, emotional there's a moment. drama. These these are characters, you know, just like in any novel or movie or whatever. We care about these characters. Yeah, yeah, but clearly this is the exact opposite of that. This is not. <laughs> this is Jack and, and that's Sam. gentlemen, why it's silly. Jack I love it too, but it's silly. no yes. trust of the audience to to go on any sort of emotional journey, and instead they are giving us the most action-packed issue ever. Yeah, and I noticed that that uh, uh, Reed started out the day in in a uh, suit. Yeah, in, yeah, well, in in tails, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, and at some point he he dropped that. And he never went back and got him again. It's like now nah, I'll, I'll just do this in the same jumpsuit that I wear all day every day. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Both both Reed and Johnny are in uh, tuxes and tails. Yeah, before the wedding and then they both end up just in their they once once they once they have changed for the day to their fantastic four outfits they decide they're never changing back and uh, <laughs> um i guess maybe their maybe their texas got incinerated by kang off panel or something i don't know 
<laughs> well, aren't they? Well, I would assume they would have been made of unstable molecules as well. Absolutely. Yes. Yes, of course. Yeah. One would like to hope. I'd say the, <laughs> the only thing that really ties together this this big, huge mess of an issue is Daredevil and the truck bomb, who uh, <laughs> is, uh, is the one recurring thread that then pays off so nicely with blowing up the invading uh, the invading things yeah. so, blow, so effectively that I don't think Atuma gets sucked up in the vacuum cleaner at the end. I think he is. See, and I'm always, I'm always about the, the small details. I'm amazed how a blind man can drive a car behind a sheet of glass. <laughs> well, you know, again, he he landed a spaceship in Central Park by touch <laughs> in his second appearance, his very second issue. Um, uh, yeah. So what, once you've already started out that way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Was that one of Wally's ones? No, that, no, that was Joe Orlando. That was oh, Joe okay. Orlando. Yeah. Who was just never a good fit on Daredevil. Just uh, not at all. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah, it's funny. They really liked using XCC guys on Daredevil because they had Joe Orlando, who was an XCC guy, followed by Willie Wood, who was an XCC guy, and then eventually followed by Gene Cullen, who was an XCC guy. But anyway, oh, this true, isn't yeah. a Daredevil episode, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we should mention that in the actual Daredevil episode. But uh, <laughs> yes, so I mean, I feel like the great tragedy of this issue is that it wasn't inked by Synod. You are a defender of Vince Coletta, uh, George's. Is there anything in particular in here about the inking that stands out to you positively or negatively? I think Vince is is strongest when he's doing normal people. Yeah, I, I will agree with you that it doesn't fit in this Fantastic Four book. I would not want him to do that. But of all the the background and regular quote unquote looking people, I think that's where he he's strongest. Um, the superhero element, I think, is where he kind of suffers. But just drawing people in suits in regular locations that I think is one of his strengths. So I appreciated it for that. Yes. I, uh, yeah, I agree. I think Claudia is better at people in civvies, which we get just a little bit of in this issue until everything goes crazy. Yes. <laughs> but yeah. there too, I appreciate the issue for having all of the heroes we know and all of the villains we know, but mixing them up and fighting other people they wouldn't normally fight. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, that's one of the things that's really fun about this issue is yeah. you get to see Thor versus the Skrulls and you get to see Quicksilver versus Human Top, Captain America versus Cobra. You get to see all of these mix up. Mandarin and versus Iceman. Yeah. <laughs> I noticed that at one point Mandarin talks about a new power ring that he is trying out, which uh, I think is that that's not going to be kept up since I think they were all <laughs> supposed to be have been found in this ancient wreckage of a dragon, <laughs> dragon <laughs> alien. But uh you know, I, once again, they're they're doing so much here. You know, you can't, just, you can't hold them to, to be perfect on remembering everything like that. No, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, that is our three books this month. This has been a tremendous amount of fun. It's been great to have you on, Churches. Any other thoughts about this year of annuals of Marvel Comics that you have to say? Well, let me say first, thank you, gentlemen, for having me, Steve and Matt. I do appreciate it, and I love. I, I mean, if I'm, I'm, a, I'm old school. I love comics, and I love talking about comics. And I actually feel offended at artists who draw comics who don't like have the history or like to talk about stuff like this because mm -hmm. this is where it all came from. This is where this is our heritage, for lack of a better word. This is this is where where we began as as a as a product. And if you you don't honor that history you become ignorant to it. And I, I love being in this world. As silly as it is, 
you can appreciate <laughs> it for for this these are the stepping stones that are still being used today and that that has to say something yes yeah yeah, which is which is part of the whole philosophy of us doing this. So thank you yes, so much yeah. for uh, for being here with us. My pleasure. Anytime. Mm -hmm. I mean, hell, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. Uh, I loved growing up as I got older and not a sense of appropriation, but I really got into the black appearances in the Marvel Universe and how they gingerly spread them around. But I thought they were mm -hmm. very ahead of their time, obviously, yes. with black panther and and you know then in the 70s with the boom but i, I really as a kid appreciated you know and, and every kid will tell you that you sort of see yourself mm -hmm. when when you see people of color or, or you know that particular color mm -hmm. that you feel right. that you are and marvel i think more than any book at the time because of course what do you give a kid when he's six or seven you give him a comic book and yeah, that's what yeah. he reads and that's what i got and i i saw very much like people watching ohura in star trek and the original that blacks actually made it to the 24th century it, <laughs> it showed me that we as a people well, me uh, we made it into comic books you know because every kid is looking at a comic book as this is a real world to them and we are there we are actually represented so i always appreciated that about marvel and probably still why I, I'm, I'm a marvel fanatic yeah that's wonderful to hear yeah, and you have gotten to work on some uh some wonderful comics and yeah and i've been very fortunate yeah yeah i've i've definitely been fortunate to work on the titles i have i may not have agreed with every story i've drawn but i've been very fortunate <laughs> to work on the titles i i have to ask as someone who was the regular artist on i guess bishop's first regular book uh where do you stand on the infamous picture of bishop next to gary coleman are you familiar with this are no you i don't think i am Oh what, my goodness. Uh, okay. What is I'm going to I'm going to share my screen cuz I actually pulled this up earlier. I meant to actually mention this when you were talking about Bishop <laughs> and uh okay. and didn't get around to it. Hold on. Okay. Oh, actually, yeah, no, I've got it right here. So let me just go ahead and share my screen. I already had it pulled up. So that is an issue of the Electric Company magazine oh from God, the early seriously? 80s. Wow. Yeah. Look at and, that. And this is Bishop. <laughs> and uh, you can't look at these two things and go like, okay, clearly Bishop was based on this picture of Gary Coleman from this magazine from 1982. Sure you can. <laughs> well, and, and remember, I was I was telling you guys that the, the these are of their time, and I I would I would not argue with you one bit if you're telling me whoever drew this concept of Bishop in in this character that they weren't influenced by something that they were looking at at the time because that's that's essentially what all that 90s stuff was it it's just the most odd pairing of pictures like <laughs> it can't be a coincidence well but it yeah it's too close to be a coincidence yeah <laughs> and, uh, but then but the idea that you know i guess uh, the official co-creator of Bishop would be Wiles Portasio and John Byrne, <laughs> yes. I'd say. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, so is, I don't know, this is one of the all-time great mysteries of Marvel Comics is what exactly is the relationship between Bishop and Gary Coleman. But as <laughs> as the first regular penciler of the first uh, monthly Bishop book, you do not, you cannot shed any any light on this. I cannot. I just appreciate that whoever did it was reading The Electric Company. <laughs> <laughs> That was a great literal book in order, you know, to activities and reading and all of that. So and, uh, and Spider-Man comics in the back, if I remember. And Spider-Man, right? Yes. The Spidey stories. Right. Yes. Yep. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, well, George, this has been so much fun. It's been great to have an actual expert who actually knows some of the people involved <laughs> and can tell us about the real pop plate and the, and the real people involved. This well, has been thank so much you. fun. Again, anytime you guys want, I'll, I'll definitely come back. That's Fantastic. Great. Yeah, we, okay. we, we don't don't worry. We'll, we'll take you up on that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, America. Thanks for listening. We will see you soon. And as I like to say, thank you to the rest of the world, because I personally am not a chauvinist and a jingoist, but uh, uh, unlike Matt, apparently. So yes. <laughs> thank you, everybody, for listening, no matter where you are. Uh, and as always, stay safe out there. OK, bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.